some questions. In the basket, that's why they call them basket cases. Can we do the overturn, the bottom one up? Yes, of course. Oh, yesterday's first and have one on the top here. Here we go. The questions, dear Ajahn. This afternoon, I was meditating in front of the beautiful pond. Behind, I don't know behind where, must be behind there, for about an hour. Then suddenly I noticed a bright orange red color flash in front of my eyes. Initially I thought it must be sunlight, but when I opened my eyes to check, it, was, it wasn't. There was no sunlight at all. I shut my eyes and continued to meditate. The bright, color, the bright colors came again. And that moment, I was feeling calm and peaceful, not scared at all, nor too excited. I am not sure if that was an imitus. Very delightful, yet not hurting to my eyes. I can also feel and be aware of the surrounding chilling wind uh, beating on my face and birds chirping. It was a wonderful experience beyond words. Please comment. Why should I comment? That was nice. <laughs> Almost certainly a nimitta because nimittas don't happen when all the other five senses have been totally are shut down. That's the job of the jhanas when all those five senses are shut down. That's just a nice light, a nimitta, your meditation is going well. And I'm very happy that you did that in front of the lake, not just in the hall. There's many places where you can meditate when the body feels peaceful and happy and content and you close your eyes and you see these lights. They are very beautiful. And so that's almost certainly a nimitta. But be careful. Because if you try that again, you think, oh, I'll just sit by the lake and get an image again. <laughs> Sometimes, because of expectations, it doesn't happen. But also, sometimes they happen because you don't expect anything. It kind of surprises you. So, well done, it's really beautiful, it's wonderful. So when those things happen, please enjoy them, you deserve them. And that's one of the reasons why in this hall over here, I did argue with the, um, the architect when he first designed this, can we have a hall without any windows? We have electric lights. And he said, no, there's regulations. You have to have some natural light coming in here. So we had his windows up high. But as soon as we had his windows up high, I made sure we, <laughs> we installed shutters. So when you put the shutters down like they are now, it means that the sun doesn't come into this, well, it comes in like reflected sun, but from the, uh, the east, the north, the west, that's where the sunlight would normally come in. It can't come in here. So if you see a beautiful light in this hall, no doubt at all, it must be an emitter. Sometimes, even then, people have doubts. So we have these iPads you can put on your eyes to make it absolutely sure you can't be seeing anything with your eyes. It's just a mental object. And those mental objects, especially the nimitters which people see, uh, they are very beautiful and very relaxing. And you can first start seeing them when there's still some sound or wind feeling in the body. But it's not disturbing because your mind is getting strong. Five senses and the sixth sense, the mind, the five senses are usually so dominant when the fifth sense, five senses, sorry, get subdued and your mind gets energized. It comes to the point there where the mind is stronger than the five senses. So you can still perceive sounds or, 
or physical feelings, but the sounds don't disturb you, the physical feelings don't really disturb you, because your mind is very strong. Make sense? Okay. What's the difference between mindful awareness and being so relaxed you might be asleep? And so, P.S. Uh, ache to be here. No, it means ace to be here. <laughs> In other words, someone's enjoying themselves. Uh, mindful awareness and being so relaxed you might be asleep. The way you know that it really is mindful awareness and not sleep, the best way is afterwards. How do you feel? If you feel kind of you know, relaxed but not bright, that is a bit of dullness. But if you feel it's really sort of, whoa, that was nice, then that's a sign that was uh, mindful awareness and being really relaxed. It's not asleep at all. Because if you get into some nice meditation, and it's nice and peaceful, it does have that afterglow off afterwards. Sleep, you may feel relaxed, but not the same as when your mind has been empowered. Dear Ajahn, during my walking meditation today, the red yoga mat seemed to disappear and become part of the floor. Maybe you just walked off the edge and... <laughs> <laughs> no. Please excuse me for telling jokes every now and again. If I'm serious all the time, people do fall asleep. <laughs> the red yoga mat seemed to disappear and become part of the floor. Sometimes one edge of the mat disappears while the other remained. Is this my, is this my eyes playing tricks on me? No, this is what happens. This is something which, you know, you can read about it in the Buddha Suttas. Sometimes when you meditate, it's like your perception can change. They all the monks and Venerable Chandra, and I've told her this story many times. But once when I was, uh, it was in Wat Banarachar as a young monk, maybe three or four years as a monk. So then I remember walking past the place where the monks would bathe. You know, just the well, pour water up and just throw it over yourself. No hot water there because it was already too hot. So anyway, I was walking past and I saw, I've never seen this before in my life, a towel, you know, which you used to dry the body, which was a color black. I mean, not just a dirty towel, I mean really black, like a piece of coal. That color. And I thought, what shop ever sells a towel which is a color of jet black, that sort of deep? And I was looking at it, sort of, what's going on? I've never seen a towel. I don't know who, what monk has that type of towel. And as I was watching it for about five or six minutes, then it changed back to white again. And I thought, am I going crazy? I wasn't going crazy because I had some good meditation. I was very aware. And this is something which and the Buddha talked about, how sometimes that during the night time it can appear like daylight to you. And during the daylight, it can look dark to you. This is your perception starting to play around. And sometimes I, I tell the monks, if that happens when you're meditating, please enjoy it. It's not dangerous at all. You're not going mad or crazy. It's just like the way your mind is trained to see things only in one way. All those uh, barriers and boundaries are removed. So you can see weird stuff. And when it happens, just, again, have some fun. One of the other things I remember telling the monks is that, you know, once I had uh, a nimitta, but it was actually, it wasn't a dream, it was a nimitta. And then it was me flying through the air, having a psychic battle with a Hindu yogi. <laughs> okay, it's weird. But I was enjoying it to the max. And I knew, because it was my nimitta, that I would win. <laughs> so I wasn't afraid, it was just fun. And I know that some teachers say, if you have those complex nimittas, then you should just you know, discard them. And I just disagree. You worked hard meditating and it's a bit of fun and games for you. It's almost like a little free gift, and so enjoy it. And then once, you know, five, six minutes is over, 
then you can go to the real limiters. But it delights the mind, a bit of fun. Yesterday morning I sat in the meditation hall and thought, what a lovely room. The light from the windows is like a cathedral coming from high. It's even better than the cathedral because we have huggable teddy bears, not cold stone statues. But now a lot of window shutters are closed. I am content sitting in a cathedral or a darkened room, but I am more content in a cathedral. You can't please everybody. <laughs> I must admit, I just love just the, the darkness. And many of you probably have seen my cave already. And it's totally dark in there. And I love that. Nothing to disturb me at all. But anyway, it's... I don't know how we can satisfy everybody yeah, go outside, but it hasn't got the same majesty of a building dedicated to the Buddha. The, the rear windows are actually open, so the person can just turn around and face the, if they want to. Yeah, but there's no sun comes through those. Uh, no, it's reflected sun, so it's the best. Reflected, okay. Okay, we can get a sun lamp for you and then. <laughs> I don't know. Again, you can't please everybody, but... Nevertheless, it's nice you had those experiences that it looked very beautiful for you. After a while, maybe you might prefer the beauty of the, the darkness, subdued, peaceful. And also, it's still the full moon will be up in the later on. So you can always go outside. And hopefully many of you did sit on the stupa or lay down on the stupa and see the full moon. The full moon is gorgeous. Anyway, good day, Ajahn. Sorry I fell asleep during your morning talk. Ah, oh, there's so many people got enlightened in that <laughs> morning talk and you missed out. Never mind. <laughs> Everything, I, I think, is recorded. Is that the case? They can always catch up on it afterwards. I have difficulty sitting still on the cushion. Try sitting on the chair, which is more comfortable. Even after several retreats, my meditation practice is still very shallow. What is your advice to deepen my meditation? I try to be kind to my body and mind. Headway is still stuffed. And just keep on being kind. After a while, it's as if your mind has had enough with sleep and it can sort of brighten itself up. Number two, don't always um, meditate the same way. Otherwise it just becomes habitual. Try doing different things in the meditation. I think I've mentioned to people before that now, seeing that problem, I developed what I call the backwards breath meditation. And I'll now demonstrate it for you. So first of all, close your eyes and just notice three breaths, in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out. And after the third breath, open your eyes. Pretty easy. Now the backwards breath meditation. I'm pretty confident that all of you, when I ask you to breathe in and out three times, started with the in-breath. Now, I'm going to ask you, when I say go, to do three in-breaths with your eyes closed, but start with the out-breath. Out, in. Out, in. Out, in. Okay, go. It actually feels different. Even though there's no reason why it should feel different, but it does. So when you have that little bit of innovation, doing things in a slightly different way, it's amazing just you know, how more interesting it becomes. And if that doesn't work, I think PJ knows the next thing I'm saying, is uh, then you can do like three in-breaths to one out-breath. <laughs> 
<laughs> and to make it amusing, a bit of joy, that makes it easier to watch. And I learned that, before I go to more questions, when I used to go and listen to talks as a labor just in Cambridge. You had these incredibly erudite scholars would talk, teach you about all sorts of things. And then I was sitting there listening to them and fall fast asleep. And even my mate I've told you about before, Bernard Carr, he was, I think, the secretary of the Buddhist Society in Cambridge. And he was a guy who was also the one of the close associates, I mean really close, of uh, Professor Stephen Hawkins. He's one of my mates, this uh, Bernard Carr. He came here to one of our conferences recently. And anyway, and when I told that to Bernard, he was saying, yeah, it was just really embarrassing. He was the secretary, so he had to introduce the speaker that night. And here's the speaker, Professor no, Christmas Humphreys, who's a high court judge, and then he would fall asleep as well. <laughs> and because he was right in front, that was very embarrassing. And so I noticed that one way to let people listen to your talks is, you know, make it funny sometimes. You know, tell a few jokes. Or just make it sort of amusing. And then people would actually be hanging out for the next joke instead of going to sleep. It was a skillful method of teaching. And it got people's attention. And they actually enjoyed, you know, those talks. And those of you who have gone to see me over in um, Bodhinyana Monastery, sometimes when people bring dana, they bring their kids as well. And kids get so bored going to religious organizations when all they talk about is Four Noble Truths. Yeah, it's good to know the Four Noble Truths. So very often, I mean, all the Anagarikas know this, that often I ask the kids, you know, you go to school? Say, yeah. What's your favorite subject? And sometimes they say maths. So I ask them, I'll ask you, I can do you a test. 26 sheep in a field, 10 die, how many survive? And they say, 16. I say, that's wrong. 26 sheep in a field, 10 die, how many survive? And the answer is 10. I say, it can't be. And I said, look, listen carefully. You make the place interesting. I say, Twenty, I say it slowly, 26 sheep in a field. <laughs> oh, trick question. Of course it's a trick question. It makes it interesting for you. And that means that people want to come back to the temple and listen to nice stories or jokes. Crikey, I better stop this. <laughs> I remember just on one of the retreats I gave over in Phuket somewhere for the Buddhist Fellowship or the Bodhinyana Singapore, I don't know what you call yourself, all the same people, but they call it different names. <laughs> um, I told the story of the, uh, the coffin ghost. <laughs> she still remembers it. She's been talked to. Shall we do the questions or the coffin ghost? And this retreat? I did it here, the coffin ghost. Bump, bump, bump. Oh, I did, okay. See, I'm so traumatized by it, I'm in denial, I never said it. <laughs> okay, here we go. Dear Ajahn, particular episodes from my past connected to current experience and pivotal outcomes are replaying in extreme detail when I meditate. I feel as if this processing needs to happen to come to terms and more to be in the now. Should we otherwise disregard past replays? And it's a good question because the answer is yes, please disregard it. Because what happens once your mindfulness starts to increase, 
because you're more peaceful, you can focus better, and then you can replay those past episodes with far greater detail. And you can actually see maybe solutions. But what happens is your mind is getting peaceful, wonderful. Don't pause on that feeling that you can understand things more deeply. It's one of the things which is in one of the suttas where the Buddha said the obstacles to deep meditation and the most uh, refined of those obstacles to deep meditation is called thinking about the Dhamma. When I first saw that, I thought, hey, this can't be right. That's what you're supposed to do, to get enlightened. And of course you looked at it, it's what the Buddha said, and you realized what he was meaning. You're getting so close to a very still mind, which you know, will create immense wisdom, because you've got different data and a stronger mindfulness afterwards. And sometimes you waste that just thinking about all sorts of Dhamma, which isn't powerful enough. It's like I've given myself some of the most powerful Dhamma talks just before getting that deep sense of stillness to get into a jhana. Amazing talks, but totally rubbish. It's like the last little bit of deceit, thinking that you can find enlightenment or real wisdom when you can think so clearly and see so clear. But the problem is you're only using what you've already known you're inferring a few things, but you haven't got those powerful insights which really just knock you upside down. Because they're really deep insights, and they do really transform you. It's not just, oh, I can understand that now. Wow! Why haven't I ever seen that before? This is amazing. It totally transforms you. So that's why I understand totally what you mean. You can, if you want, just play there for a little while. But when you are peaceful that way, see if you can get that little bit more peace by discarding your past. You don't resolve the past that way. The past is endless. You may resolve one bit of the past in extreme details, then another will ask to be resolved. That is endless. The lovely thing about the past, this is how the Buddha taught, said once you do become a stream winner, you'll find that the past is what the Buddha called a hosikama, karma that was and never affects you ever again. You have let it go. And it's a beautiful thing, you can almost, it's like you've been uh, dragging all of these, well, like, you're like a, a tugboat, and you're dragging all these trailers you know, th along the river. And they're really, really heavy. And you realize you don't have to do this. You just untie the knot between you and the past. And you don't have any weight on you at all. You let go of them all in one beautiful act of letting go. That's a fantastic thing to be able to do. Then you're free. You're free of the past. I know some people say you learn from the past. But I don't agree with that at all. You learn much more from the present moment. Dear Ajahn, after three days I still fall asleep whenever I sit down to meditate. What should I do? Do walking meditation. Do you fall asleep when you're doing walking meditation? If you do, I can hear you banging against the wall. <laughs> Just go to sleep and then bang on the wall, bang. <laughs> so you know, in these rooms over here. So do walking meditation, it gets you very still and very peaceful. And remember just one of the walking meditation I did when I was first year as a monk over in Bangkok. I remember just walking in this hall it wasn't even as big as this, and I had a grandfather clock there. And when I would do half an hour one way and half an hour back, it wasn't forced. Because I was watching the 
the feelings, the sensations in my feet, they became so interesting. I was just lifting, you know, just one foot and seeing just how it lifted up. It never lifted straight up. My feet lifted up and went back a bit. And then it went forward in an arc. And then it went down onto the floor. And then my weight transferred from one foot to the foot which had just moved, so the other foot could start moving up. And that was just uh, an approximate a summary, it was not really in detail when I, what I just said. In real detail, so many muscles have to move that when you lift your feet off the ground. And it was fascinating and also enjoyable. I loved doing that. I wasn't bored at all. It wasn't something I forced myself to do. I loved doing it. But the anecdote I like to share was I was you know, walking in the hall, maybe I'd done about 45 minutes, and then I heard a sound from the distance. That's not a full name. Ajahn Brahm is shortened for your comfort. The real name is Brahma Wangso. And Brahma Wangso. And I was really interested. What was that? So I took my mindfulness away from my feet. And I realized there was another monk shouting in my ear about this far away. And then, he was kind because he knew what meditation could do, this monk. And so he, he wasn't sort of shaking me, he was just trying to get my attention. And then I realized that I had an appointment to go to Akadana, the meal in somebody's house, and I'd forgotten about it. And the head monk had actually sent this younger monk to come and get me. And it was because you were doing your walking meditation, you were really quite still. Then I thought, oh, I have to come out of my stillness. And so I started moving my head so I can get some eye contact with this monk. He was just you know, right next to me. You wouldn't believe how many muscles have to turn just to move your head around. It was fascinating. And, okay, you might say I was attached to this, but I, yeah, I agree with that. It was just joyful and wonderful. And it took me about two or three minutes to turn my head around to this monk. I'm going fast right now. And when I got eye contact with him, I said, What? <laughs> And it took me a while to get out of that stillness. But I was glad he did that because that showed me just how powerful that walking meditation can be. I had a wonderful time doing that. So don't diminish that walking meditation. If you find it, you go to sleep when you're sitting meditation, do the walking meditation. There's also, I must admit, that sometimes I feel sleepy in here and the reason is I know it very well because it, to me it's warm in here. I know many of you like that, that heat. And again, you can't sort of get it. Well, sometimes I thought we could have individual air conditioners. <laughs> they can come down right in front of you and you can have your own sort of temperature. But no, that's a bit too complicated. But you can always go to your room. And in your room, uh, they've got heaters in there, haven't they? You put the heater on if you're cold, you can open the windows if you're hot. You can adjust the temperature just for you. And it's also, if it's cold, you can put you know, sort of a blanket on it in here. You said, I can't, and if it's hot for me, I can't take my robes off. That is just... <laughs> but in your room you can. No one will see you. So at least you can have some comfort there. So, please in your room. Try meditating there and get it not too hot. You don't want to be really chilly, but just when it's a little bit cold, it just it wakes up the brain. So you can try that. Dear Ajahn Brahm, I didn't say dear, say hi Ajahn Brahm. The nimittas often seem to appear in between my eyebrow. Eyebrows, yeah. It contracts a little and expands, contracts and expands even bigger and wider, 
like a consistent explosion in the form of luminous white light. Sometimes the light appears to be in a calm and stable, there is no to be in a calm and stable, there is no light or sunlight coming from outside manner which covers the mind view unlike the explosion of limiters. Please correct me if I'm wrong. That's good enough. Can you share with us how does or what is the event that could happen when one enters the stream? Is it the understanding of impermanence and the Four Noble Truths that penetrates so deeply into the person's mind which occurs in a continuous way on several occasions but with a very short period of time? So what happens is once, you know, the uh, you do need a, quite a bit of stillness and insights start to come. And the best simile which I can give is just like an explosion happens in the mind. Maybe it's because I'm male and just use male similes or male metaphors. But it's like a huge explosion. Many of your old ideas get blown up. But the problem is, it's just after the explosion, it's like there's smoke everywhere. You don't know just what sort of attachments have been destroyed and what still remain. So that's why you have to wait a while until everything settles. And then you can see just what is left. But that's one of the reasons why whenever these events happen, you know they're powerful, something has happened and occurred. The, you know, the afterglow, for want of a better word, wow, what on earth was that? And then after a while, you can see when things settle, you can see what's left. So at first you can never be sure just like that time, really amazing meditation and insight. And I thought another enlightened monk in Thailand. But when that monk mixed those two curries with my one meal of the day, oh my goodness, I realized I wasn't in that story. You have to take a time for things to settle down before you know what has been totally destroyed and never will rise again and what is still there. So that's what the event is like. Wow. But even in that event, okay, I realized I wasn't enlightened. Still, it's all great assistance. You know, many things were destroyed, but not enough. And this is actually what happens. Lastly, can a, a high-functioning... Excuse me. See, even, even I get tired in here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, can a high-functioning autistic person, if practice and meditate the Dharma correctly, be able to meet the Dharma again in their very next life? Don't see why not. But you know that sometimes when you label people, you know, autistic, ADHD, schizophrenic, paranoid, whatever, I must admit, it's not because I'm a rebel, but I think that labelling people is just really unfair. They may exhibit autistic behaviour for a while, but other times they can exhibit amazing behaviour, which is so far away from autistic. And I say this because even like schizophrenic people, I always thought that schizophrenic people would never be able to meditate. But then I ordained one. He's an amazing monk. You know, sometimes, you know, you take a chance and you know, see what happens. And sometimes it's like you hit the jackpot. And he's a great monk. I'm so proud of him. If you saw him, you would never think that that monk was schizophrenic. Does a great job. And senior monk now. But anyway, that it really made me challenge these ideas people have. You know, who you are. Because somebody gives you that label and a lot of times you live up to that label. You don't have to. 
And that's also one of the reasons why when uh, the, uh, the place, the mental health department in Woodlands over in Singapore, whatever, not Woodlands, or it? Yeah, Woodbridge, okay, yeah. When we had a, um, a conference there, and I got invited to present over there, and I did my usual presentations, you've heard the stories before, but afterwards, there was this Catholic professor, and he said, oh, I really liked your talk, I saw this big cross on his, his chest, can you please come and bless, you know, my part of the Institute of Mental Health? And straight away I said, you're a Catholic, you want me to bless your place? He said, yeah. I asked, why? And he said, because what you said is how I practice. One in particular, and I asked what his unit was, it was the schizophrenic unit. He was the professor, the head of the department. And he asked him, how do you treat schizophrenia in Singapore? And he said, I don't. I treat the other part of the patient, which isn't schizophrenic. And even though he's a Catholic, I broke one of my little rules. I put my hand up to him and said, Sahadu. You know he's supposed to do that. I sighed because I really respected the wisdom of that. I said, well done, at least somebody can understand just how to deal you know, with mental illness. When you treat the other part of it, you're actually encouraging and building up the strength of the other part of that person. And I say I've never seen a schizophrenic person in all my life. All I've ever seen is a person who exhibits episodes of schizophrenia. I've never seen a criminal, even though I've been in prisons many times teaching and stuff, teaching people how to levitate over walls. <laughs> I've never seen a criminal, I've seen people who've committed crimes. And it's very different. So I've never seen a person who can't meditate. All I've ever seen is a person who hasn't been able to meditate yet. So you can see the positive nature of those sorts of attitudes. It means other things are possible for them. So anyway. Lastly, can... Oh yeah, high functioning. Yeah. Meet the Dharma in their very next life. Of course they can meet the Dharma in their very next life. They can meet the Dharma in this mind. Assume I attain the goal of contentment. How do I go about making everyday life's decisions? Yeah, with contentment. Do you mean the goal of enlightenment? I don't know. But anyway, the goal of contentment, how do I go about making everyday life's decisions? You know we make too many decisions. And sometimes when I uh, procrastinate, I don't make a decision, a lot of time the decision makes itself. Things happen and other people take responsibility and the decision gets made. Sometimes I give in that simile that when you have to make a decision, it's an important decision. What was that case of, is in Oslo University. Lady asked a question, I've got an important decision to make in life. How do I make these important decisions? And then, sort of, I, instead of being too vague, so let's make it more specific. Suppose you are thinking whether to marry the man sitting next to you. And straight away, I remember this, she put her hand over her face <laughs> and she went beetle red. <laughs> That's the decision she was thinking about. And so, so if that was the decision, then the best way of solving that problem is to take out a coin and flip it. Heads I marry him, tails I don't. <laughs> and everybody started laughing, it's an important decision, you're just going to toss a coin? I said, yes. And when it comes down, heads I marry him, tails I don't. It comes down, tails I don't. How do you react? 
if you react by saying yes <laughs> then that is just you understanding what you really want to do if it comes up down say tails and you don't marry him say two out of three so do <laughs> that shows you do want to marry him so tossing the coin is just to make it much more clear just your intuition what that wants to do and that's the best way of making decisions and if you have a life of contentment you know you find really it doesn't matter what decisions you make a lot of the time you turn left you turn right you know, if you turn left you go the long way uh, around to Perth you turn right you go past the monastery to Perth both ways you get to Perth but the point is that once you make your decision please commit to it don't think, oh, I should have done another decision, I should have married him, I should not have married him. So once you made your decision, commit to it. Because people make, waste so much energy making decisions and they've got nothing left to make that decision work. So save the, your energy to after you made the decision, what you do next. For example, whatever job I have, I'm contented with it. Great. Now someone else comes along with an objectively better offer, better pay, environment, people. Do I take the job? Toss the coin. <laughs> I really mean that. I recently started trying to learn some basic Pali. Do you have any recommendations on studying it? So far it is very enjoyable. Excellent. The thing which A.K. Water and Professor Water kept on saying that if you're going to be learning Pali, read the suttas, even if you don't understand every word. That's actually how you learn. You don't learn words, you learn phrases and how they're actually said. You learn some basic Pali, but then you can actually start getting up these suttas in Pali and you can understand some of it. And that really encourages me when I started reading, hey, I can understand this. And that gives you the encouragement. You can always go and see someone else's translation to check yourself, but it gives you encouragement and also sometimes inspiration. You read these things, you can see things I haven't seen in that Pali. Wow, now I get to understand this stuff. So remember also the unit of language is a phrase, never a word. That really helps. I might say to you, good on you, mate. What does that mean? You're not my mate, I'm not married to you. Good on you, I can't put good. Good on what? If you analyse that, that phrase, it's totally meaningless. Good on you, mate. But nevertheless, the way it's said is what is beautiful. I remember uh, the story of one of the Vietnamese boat people who came to Australia many years ago. And when he came, uh, it's amazing that he made it here. And when he actually arrived on to Australia, sea dry land, and then he was just really tired, had nothing with him, just, I don't even have the shirt on his back with him, it probably all ripped up by then. The first people he saw on the, you know, coming in by boat were not immigration officials at an airport the first people he saw were these two Aussie fishermen. And they shouted out at him, Welcome to Australia, mate! Have a beer! <laughs> and even though he was a Buddhist, it was just the, the words of welcome and the joy, not so where you're from, have you brought anything with you, and just all of that demeaning conversation which you sometimes have, even I have sometimes when you come into an airport, I'm Australian. What have you got under your... Is that a suicide belt under... This American uh, immigration official asked me this. He said, what have you got under your robe there? I said, it's just, just fat. <laughs> he said, I had to ask. I thought it was a suicide belt. No, it's only fat. He said, same thing. <laughs> Or over here in Perth, they asked me if I have any hair gel in my, my package. 
He actually asked that, and I, I did that, and he just burst out laughing. There is a lot of encouragement to seek bliss. I like this. When sitting, how do I approach strong emotions that arise, like grief, rejection, envy, anger, and pain? These are great obstacles to bliss. You've got grief. Remember, just grief is looking at what you've lost. It's always just something you've loved. So just look at what you've had. I keep on saying that to my father. This is a wonderful father. So when he died, I felt like giving him ovation. The end of a concert was a beautiful, beautiful concert he gave. Only 16 years. And even today, sort of I have that um, bliss when I think of him. Rejection. I was rejected from my colleagues Wat Papong when we ordained bhikkhunis. That made me so much more free. I didn't have to, you know, just uh, listen to everything they said and follow them, even though I thought it was stupid. So now I was free. Rejection is marvelous. It makes life much more simple. Envy. Sometimes, why do I want to envy something? Do you want to get a better job with more salary? Is your pay not enough? Honestly, if you get more salary, you get a promotion. It's still never enough money, but it is guaranteed much more stress. How much money do I earn as a Buddhist monk? How much money does Ayachanda earn as a bhikkhuni? Nothing. But I'm sure you still envy us. <laughs> and anger and pain. Anger again is what are you getting angry for? You just but you know, somebody else has done the, the, the terrible mistake or the terrible thing. They've hurt me or they've taken things or whatever. We had a robbery of Bodhinyana Monastery some years ago, quite a while ago now. A burglar came into our workshop, no workshop, yeah, this is our workshop, and took some very expensive tools from our workshop. And then afterwards, you know, we realized we'd been burgled, and I told the monks, number one, they can steal our chainsaw drills and stuff, but please don't let them ever steal your happiness and forgiveness. These are the things we really can possess as monks, not chainsaws and, or um, uh, expensive drills to you know, do our building work. And everyone got that. They can steal your husband, you go back to Singapore, you find he's gone off to China somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but please don't let him steal your, your happiness. Why let that go? You don't have to. But also, I remember with that robbery of our uh, workshop, we found out it was insured. And when we got the insurance back, of all that lost stuff, we could get new equipment, much higher quality, much more reliable, for the same price. Actually, we made a profit on it. <laughs> new equipment, less money. And so, I always was asking the police if they could find those burglars so I could give them a blessing and invite them to come back again when we needed them next time. <laughs> <laughs> That's that typical Buddhist practice. You know, we just look at the positive side of things and that, that was a very positive thing. Anyway, these are great obstacles to bliss. One of the great solutions to bliss. I told this to the Jhana Bhuvis during the range retreat, because you know, I have a chance to do my 15-day uh, vacation. You know where I go when I do a vacation? In my cave, into meditation. And just the second day, I was peaceful, but you know, there was not really blissing out. And I couldn't, and straight away, you know, you've figured it out. I didn't think about it, I didn't ask questions, just the, the solution just came up. 
And it was this beautiful saying, when you want something more, you can't enjoy what you already have. And that was what I was doing, I didn't see it. I was wanting more. It's only the second day, I thought, come on, let's give us a bit of bliss. And I wanted that, which means I couldn't enjoy where I already was. And once I saw that, didn't do anything, we just didn't want anything. And then all the bliss started coming, just flowing in. Try that. Say to yourself, when I want something more, I cannot enjoy what I already have. In this meditation retreat, that's what we do. Enjoy what we already have. And goodness gracious, the bliss blows your mind. Please excuse those phrases, blowing your mind. Please don't analyse it. Blow your mind, what the heck does that mean? That's one of those phrases we used to use in the 60s. It just, you know, things you just don't expect. Sometimes we prefer a more refined word. It discombobulates you. <laughs> Look in the dictionary, that is a word to discombobulate someone. It's one of my favourite words. It means you don't get combobulated, whatever that means. <laughs> What's the definition of a successful person? As a lay person, it is often defined by wealth, power, status, and anything short of that is deemed unsuccessful. Oh, that certainly makes me unsuccessful. I don't have any wealth, power. You have to have a meeting with the monks like we had this afternoon to see what we need to do. Status. Have I got status? I suppose I'm well known. Okay. And anything short of that is deemed unsuccessful. So I'm the most unsuccessful person in this room. Oh, sorry, no, with Ayachanda as well. She's unsuccessful. <laughs> is that what success really means? If you had a wish, what would it be? Can you honestly say your wish is to be so content you never needed any more wishes ever again? That's success. You know, I was successful when I was at university. I passed all the exams. But then I found, hang on, when you pass one exam, you've always got another one to do afterwards. You know, you, you get a BA, then you get an MA, then you get a PhD, then you get something else to add on to the PhD. It never ends seeking success. And how much money do you need? Just another zero. I like the word you put another zero in the end of the amount of money you have in the bank. It's telling you something. You're adding zeros, you're adding nothing. <laughs> the same with cell phones. Why do people have cell phones? What does a cell phone mean? It's, you're putting yourself in jail. And to emphasize that, you can see the bars. That's <laughs> not for a novice meditator who can't get into deep meditation yet, is there any point doing so for doing five or ten minute meditations? Oh yes. Is a 30, med 30 minute meditation better than three ten minute meditations? Depends. You can't compare. If you have... The thing to do is when you're meditating, if you have, doesn't matter how much time you have, just enjoy it. And when you feel it's time to come out, just ask your mind. Mind, do you want to come out? Is it time for you to come out now? Or do you want to carry on? And quite often my mind says, why come out? It's enjoying itself, so carry on. So even this retreat, you know, we, the lights go out or... Uh, PJ turns off the amplifier in another four minutes. <laughs> but you can carry on if you wish. So sometimes don't be a prisoner of time. You say three minutes, 30 minutes. 
don't think about the length of time, but the quality of that time. How peaceful were you? Sometimes I used to do that as a young meditator, to see how long I could sit, to improve on my personal best. How stupid that was. You know, one time, when we did these retreats, I wasn't a teacher. Sometimes I made a resolution that after the talk in the evening, I would carry on meditating in here, and I would determine I'd be the last person in the hall. That was my resolution. So I closed my eyes, and I'd hear quite a few people leaving, and then I'd open one eye, subconsciously. She's still there. <laughs> Who does she think she is? <laughs> and I closed my eyes. She's still there. <laughs> How stupid I was. And even on the walking meditation path, sometimes you see two people, they're walking next to each other, trying to see who's the slowest. <laughs> That's human nature, so please laugh when you see that sort of stuff. In some lines of Tibetan Buddhism, there are lineages of meditators, I monks or Buddhists who procreate. How does that work? Look how many disciples I've made. Is that what you mean by procreation? <laughs> <laughs> we haven't got the same genes, though. Look, you know, if... Sometimes I don't believe that at all. You know, if you have that sensual desire to have sex and have kids, is that letting go of attachments? Those of you who have had children, it's a great responsibility. And it's also, you know, the physical attachments you have. Even like, you know, some monks, you know, they've been married before, and then they become monks, nuns who have been married before and they have children. Sometimes it's quite a burden for them because they're always concerned. No matter what they say, if you're a father or a mother, that child which you bore is really close to you. It can cause a lot of suffering you know, if they die unexpectedly or they're there in physical trouble. Of course you have to care for them. You try to do the best you possibly can. It's not a simple task raising a child. That's why one of the, some of these lineages of meditators, monks or Buddhists who procreate doesn't make any sense to me. Ajahn Brahm, are there enlightened beings who are alive today? Yes. How can we identify the enlightened beings? Uh, serve them a curry they like and mix all the other stuff. <laughs> Send them to an island and when they make this beautiful calligraphy, just put four farts on it. <laughs> you can't actually tell who is enlightened, as I said, but you can certainly tell who isn't. So that's one the best way. Will enlightened beings <laughs> Will enlightened beings die like all of us and reside permanently in the heavens? No. Enlightened beings have had it with being in heaven. Been there, done that. So the enlightened beings vanish. The simile was there was a uh Agiwachagota Sutta. There was like a lamp with a flame. And then the Buddha said, that flame, does that flame exist? You can see it. You know, it can warm you and give you light. What actually is that flame? That flame is the coming together of three causes, three supports. The wick, the wax, and the heat. When you take any of those three causes away, the wick is all burnt out, the wax is all used up, or as I usually say, the wind blows out that flame. Where does the flame go? If it's been a good flame, well behaved, didn't burn anybody, 
is that flame going to go to the heaven where all good flames live happily ever after? Or if it's been a bad flame that's burnt people, is that flame going to go to, to the hell realms, which are always supposed to be fiery? Doesn't make any sense, does it? When the cause is finished, so does the result. The flame just disappears. Gone. Enlightened beings die like all of us. What happens? The courses have gone. That stream of what we recognize as a being ceases. Where does it go? The same places where frames go when they nibbana. The question doesn't apply. The last question here. Are you an enlightened being, Ajampa? Oh, I'm terribly sorry, but it's two minutes past nine, so I can't answer that. <laughs> Okay, so we've still got some questions left, but I think about the same number of questions from last time. We can do those tomorrow as well. Is that okay, or do you want another question? Fine, okay. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Hehehe. <laughs>